Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 105 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How are y'all doing? Hope you guys are doing good. Hey, just a reminder, I've got some new merch items that should be in hand. Actually, the hologram stickers came in yesterday. They look awesome. And uh, I will have these pick cases that I have with the logo on them that zipper up, and you can uh, they're padded, and they fit right in your case. That's uh, that way you didn't lose those expensive picks, and so those will be here next week. And when I get those in, I'll be sending an email out to the people on the email list. I got them for Dell Fest and IBMA because I'm going to be there, and I wanted to have some special things to sell there. But I'm putting some aside for listeners who won't be there first. And if you're on the mailing list, I'll send you an email and a link as soon as those other items get in my hand. I'll send out one email to all. I don't want to send out a bunch of emails to people, so. Um, if you aren't on the email list, just go to mandolinsbeer.com and please sign up today. Take seconds to do, and I'm not going to spam you with a bunch of emails. Um, that is it for that. Also, if you haven't followed me on Instagram yet, I'm closing in on 3,000 people. So if you could uh, click the Instagram follow, that'd be rad as well. Hey, y'all, what do Jake Jolliffe, Matt Flinner, Maddie Whitler, David Benedict, Tristan Scroggins, Casey Campbell, Dominic Leslie, and Mike Marshall have in common? All besides being guests on this podcast, some multiple times, they are all teaching the Modern Mandolin Camp November 4th through 6th. If you sign up by October 1st, you'll get a 10% deal, and it's only 250 bucks for the whole thing. Uh, they also will all be recorded, classes and concerts, and they'll be accessible after the weekend on a password-protected site. You're also going to get tons of sheet music and or tablature. So sign up today. I'm going to be on that. That's going to be great. It's at modernmandolin.org or go to mandolinsandbeer.com and click the link. Also, speaking of great teachers, Peg Head Nation. Again, it's the name of people all oh, been on the podcast, except for Chad Manning. I got to reach out to Chad Manning. Uh, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, from beginner to advanced, it's all there. Heck, if you already mastered the mandolin and you want to take on another old-timer acoustic instrument, they got them all. Guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, bass, bluegrass, old-time, and all the other styles. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That is all one word. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And if, again, if you're not following them on Instagram, do it immediately. They just posted a picture of one of their octave mandolins. Ugh, unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. And speaking of unbelievable stuff, last but not least, handcrafted mandolins designed to build in Austin, Texas, Ellis Mandolins. It's great people over there, too. So Ellis Mandolins in Austin, Texas. Thank you guys so much for the sponsorship. Let's get into this episode with John Moore. Um, I'm going to post some links at mandolinsandbeer.com where you can find all John's stuff, including the book that he talks about, Talent is Overrated. I, however, am not going to post a link to the John Moore exercises. I don't own those. Um, you can maybe reach out to John uh, and see if he'd be willing to share them. Uh, you know, you can find them if you go out there and Google it. I just, um, I've asked, been asked before, 
um, to to post them, but I don't own them, so I don't feel that it's uh, that it is in uh, my rights to do so. So, send John a message via his website. Let's get into the episode. Cheers, everybody. All right, and now it is my pleasure to have on the podcast John Moore. John, how you doing? Doing great. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. I really appreciate it. And you said you were calling from out west there in Colorado. Yep. Yeah, I live live in the southwest corner of Colorado down there. Kind of, it's hard to tell somebody where I live because <laughs> it's not. I don't live anywhere where there's a town, but I'm between. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm what we talked a little bit earlier, a little bit west of Telluride, probably hour and a half west of Telluride, on the Utah border out here. Yeah. Not not really a place where you go to get gigs. <laughs> Definitely not, unless it's a you residency. You move where I did to enhance your musical career. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you've had quite the uh, quite the cool musical career too. And before we go into um, some of your past, and what I really want to uh, pick your brain about is, um, you know, your technique. Your your playing is so clean and just it sounds fantastic. Your chop sounds phenomenal your picking just all as just all aspects of your playing are like oh, thank you you know and, and one of one of the things that I, I the highest compliment i always feel i can pay a fellow mandolin player is like whenever i listen to your stuff i feel like i need to play like right away like i'm like oh my yeah, just, i'm inspired to pick up the mandolin oh immediately, man well so. that, i appreciate hearing that yeah well i appreciate I, all I the music you put out <laughs> Now, you mentioned one of the things you mentioned is you have a solo album that you've been working on. Um, uh-huh. And so that is going to be making its way out there um, in the near future. Now, when you say solo album, is it solo mandolin or is it just kind of? No, it's solo everything. I would, you know, I would love to make a solo al- uh, mandolin album. And I and I, maybe I should have done that at first, but I've got a lot of tunes that I've mandolin tunes that I've written that I haven't recorded yet. This started out just as music it's just songs that i like you know i'm a guitar player too and 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 i'm going back and forth on the guitar and the mandolin on this record and singing on it and it was kind of funny because i recorded it at dennis kaplinger's uh, studio out there in california and we just recently lost dennis and um which was a the big hit to the to everybody who follows uh acoustic music and uh it, my album is in that is is in his studio and there'll, there'll come a point here before long where we'll go out there and get it out of the studio and have, have his computer and and get it somewhere and get it mixed down um but it's it's a mixture of all kinds of stuff you know i i i don't know I don't know if you're aware of it or whatever, if I've ever told many people, I'm also in the horse industry. And so there's a little bit of that that's leaked into this album too. A lot of the, not a lot, but a few of the tunes on there kind of lean themselves towards, uh, you know, the Tennessee studs on there. I had to put that on. Oh, such a great song. uh, You know, and and, uh, then I've got some original mandolin tunes that I wrote on there and, and uh, can't handle rag and a few things like that. So it's probably got a little bit of a Western flavor to it. But uh, Dennis played a lot of, on that album, and he was right there, you know. And he wasn't, um, you know, it didn't cost me anything. So here, Dennis, take, <laughs> take the banjo break on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I paid him to be an engineer. Hey, play the fiddle on this one. So, so some of his nicest work um, that I've heard Dennis record i'm lucky it, it's on this record and i i'm really anxious to get it out and it'll, it'll be out soon i'd like to get it mixed up this fall and maybe have it out this winter yeah that's exciting man well i'm excited to hear it for sure and now do you play did you play guitar on the bluegrass etc albums as well 
Yeah. Um, you know, we were a trio with that band and I, my, so my primary thing was guitar in that configuration, you know, we, it was Dennis and I, and, uh, so for a, for a long time it was Bill Bryson for and then uh, Bill passed away too and then it was uh, Steve Spurgeon and uh, so we were just guitar bass and and banjo and then Dennis would switch over to fiddle and I'd switch over to mandolin and sometimes Dennis would play guitar you know we we did some gospel stuff that way and sometimes we did uh, mandolin and fiddle duets but but I'd say for the main part of it all I I played guitar on that yeah then, it's some incredible you know, guitar playing too I mean all the instruments on that everything the bass the the banjo obviously the mandolin the guitar it is just like filled with some some great playing and what i really am drawn to about it drawn to about it is you guys did the covers you did are a lot of songs too and not just like bluegrass burners or you know like one four five stuff it's like tunes with cool changes as well and um, popular songs, which I always love listening to the mandolin and, and bluegrassy mm. versions of songs like that, because I also love just songwriting as well. So it's cool to see that on those albums. You know, that's probably a little bit of a reflection of the environment that we grew up playing in. You know, um, I knew Dennis since about 77, 78. And uh, we, you know, we played out there where we, we actually... <laughs> we're able to make a living playing music and that's that's hard to do uh depending on where you live and how old you are and what your experience is but we would we would play um we would be playing three days a week at disneyland and three days a week at knott's berry farm and then a day at sea world and we'd have a club gig at night playing country music and then we'd play bluegrass festivals we'd take time off and go on the road and our our shows became um, kind of geared toward uh, just entertaining the audience. And in a lot of the places we played, if we mixed up uh, different kinds of stuff in there, it it made us a little bit different than a lot of the other bands. Uh, like you know, you were talking about cover tunes. Like we did um, traveling band, Creedence Clearwater Revival. You know, as a as a fast you know hard driving bluegrass. Now, another album we did, Evangelina, that Hoyt Axton wrote, you know, just, but Dennis could, could play that banjo like, uh, like playing a xylophone or, you know, he could play it uh, to where it had that, that good Tex-Mex sort of sound to it. And so that was fun. Um, we've always just tried to play, play music um, on the instrument we were playing. So if I play mandolin music, I'm playing it, whether it's a blues tune or a rock tune or a jazz tune or a swing tune play it as as a rock tune or a jazz tune or a swing tune but play it on the mandolin and and Dennis did the same on banjo and and stuff so it's not the, the playing doesn't end up married to a particular style i i love to play bluegrass mandolin but i also like to play swing you know and uh, and it should sound like swing <laughs> <when you laughs> exactly and not a bluegrass you're trying to play swing. i always 
always joke like um because I, I love bluegrass but not everybody loves bluegrass but i always say everybody thinks they love bluegrass until you make them sit through three hours of it <laughs> when you're hired for a gig yeah. and they're not expect because i think people have a different idea of you know everybody likes the idea of bluegrass i think but you know if they're not bluegrass fans three hours of hard driving bluegrass can be a lot <laughs> a lot to listen yeah, to and, <laughs> exactly and you know there's there's so many just just if there's a quite a spectrum of styles within it i mean if you if you go from from ralph stanley all the way up through newgrass revival um all of those and then what allison krauss uh did um that was bluegrassy and she's done some stuff that's a lot of country but people can say yeah i like bluegrass and sometimes you gotta say well who do you like in bluegrass because <laughs> it can be completely different and if any one of those, if you make, like you say, if, um, if you take somebody who is doesn't appreciate the the history and the culture that going back to um, the you know development of bluegrass and and the iconic figures in bluegrass, if they don't understand that, they're comparing it wrongly to more modern music. And I can understand that they wouldn't be able to sit there for very long, hear some some of it. But but uh, you know those of us that that like it all we you know i i appreciate bill monroe's playing a lot of the times it isn't just because i hear bill monroe cold turkey and listen to it and go oh i like that that's true but i also appreciate it because i recognize when i hear him play where so many other players uh, come from you know um and how bill used uh double stop fiddle double stops john hartford once said that bill monroe is one of the great fiddlers of all time he just did it on the <laughs> did it on the mandolin and he grew up listening to fiddlers and a lot of modern mandolin players i don't think realize how much bill incorporated you know double stop stuff you can hear it in roanoke you can hear it in rawhide you can hear it when he's when he's playing everything he's playing like a fiddle player and then people who have modeled their playing off of bill and then the newer generation models their playing off the people who modeled it off of bill <laughs> right, modeled right. It off of uncle Penn. If you don't appreciate that, uh, sometimes you miss one of the the coolest parts of bluegrass, I think. I agree. I've said on this podcast a bunch of times, you can always tell the players who went back and listened and worked on Monroe stuff versus the players who play Monroe sort of stuff, but they've gotten it from a different, they've gotten it from someone who listened to Monroe as opposed to going all the way back. I think they, there's always like a fundamental feel and groove that's missing sometimes and stuff where people mm -hmm. haven't gone back all the way to Bill Monroe and at least just like kind of listen to it uh, with an ear to be like, I just got it. What is this all about? Because man, if, when you yeah. dig into it, it is way more complex than you would ever imagine from just listening to a song. Yeah. He was very, very innovative, you know, and all those guys were, if you, you think about it for their time, I mean, look what Earl Scruggs was doing to, there were people finger picking banjos long before Earl but the the way the the pattern that Earl came up with, you know, that's very groundbreaking. Bill Monroe's was was very innovative. Um, Absolutely, these guys, these guys were innovators. Oh, know? for sure. It's funny yeah. to think about it too, because a lot of times when you would see, um, you know, like a. Uh, uh, videos on YouTube and you look at some of the comments or whatever and if it's like a hot pick and bluegrass band they're like oh you know that ain't no part of nothing but I'm like oh if, you know what Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys came out today they would be ripping it up those er, some of that early Monroe Brothers stuff
come from the loathsome way of sin. Hide you in the blood of Jesus. Come for the Lord, he will take you in. Hide you in the blood of Jesus. Oh, hide you in the blood. I mean, they are just ripping, <laughs> and it's killer. Yeah, and you know the the thing that uh, that that makes it. Isn't a lot of times the notes, or even or the choice of notes. Uh, you know, there's just a lot that goes into um, what gives music its drive. You know, what gives music its its power. And a lot of times it's not speed. Um, I I love to listen to. Uh, I'm talking about banjo players, and here we are supposed to be talking about mandolin. But if I listen <laughs> to somebody like like J.D. Crow play the banjo, Earl Scruggs, Doug Dillard, um, or John Hickman. Um, you listen to some of that stuff that just drove. It just was power, you know. And it a lot of it wasn't really that fast, but it had this this presence that just made you stop and go, "Whoa!" And um, the the cool thing about it was a lot of people think that that drive, and we could apply this to mandolins. A lot of people think that drive is associated with speed, and I I never thought that. And um, I think what what really makes it have that is when every single note can stand on its own. Um, you know, when I'm teaching mandolin lessons, um, I, uh, I tell the students the stories about um, the great baseball players of the past who could count the stitches on the ball. There's a ball coming at them at close to 100 miles an hour spinning, and they could count the stitches. In other words, they had the power to, to look very carefully and observe very quickly and be able to hit that ball in a way to put it wherever they wanted it to go, um, you know, over the fence to the left field or infield to the right or wherever. And uh, we have to do that musically. And if we listen to every note as it's coming by it, by our ear, if every note has to stand on its own and the spacing between the notes, when, when that's exactly the same from one note to another, and you own every note and play it with authority – you get drive out of that. You know, it doesn't sound apprehensive. It doesn't sound, um, you know, swimmy or <laughs> wavery or whatever. You know, it just it just has a, a presence to it that uh, that gets your attention. And and I think it's ears. It, you have to hear that stuff. You have to pay attention to those details. And, uh, you know, anyway. Oh, no. I'm rambling, yeah. rambling here. No, I, I love it. This is great, man. No, please do. That's what this is about. Um, so how did you how did you get into mandolin? Oh, you know that's interesting. I I lived in Vista, California, and twelve miles away over in Escondido was a little shop called the Fiddle Fret Shop. And the old man that had that place was named John Dopero, and he was the last surviving Dopero brothers who invented the dobro. And you know dobro is dope for dopero and bro for brothers. And John Dopero had a man had a shop over there called the Fiddle Fret Shop. And my folks got me a little potato bug mandolin from him, and um, I learned to play that. And then they got me a dobro mandolin that he had made, and I started playing that. And uh, in town, other side of town, um, another musical friend said, there's a kid over there that you ought to really get together with and play. His name's Stuart Duncan. He lives over on Warmlands on the other side of town. So a guy named Jack Weddle got he and I together. And we started playing, and then there were uh, two other kids from Oceanside, Jim and Steve Haiti, and then my sister on the bass, and we had a little band when I was a kid. I think Stuart was, at that time, probably 10 or 11, and I was probably 
11 or 12 when that started. And, uh, and I, so I learned to do that. And, you know, th- this kind of segues probably into another, another thing I could talk about is the way I learned to play is really, really different than the way a lot of people learn to play today. And I never really thought about it at the time. Shoot, I was a kid, but you know, I, we, there was no music teacher in town. There was nobody to take lessons from. And there was one bluegrass festival in Norco, um, nor, up north of us, that happened once a year. And other than that, there was nothing. And my folks had um, two records. They had a compilation record that had a couple of Bill Monroe numbers on it. And they had a Homer and Jethro album. Yeah, and so I was two years old laying there in front of the stereo. And, and my folks would put a stack of records on there. And I'd listen to those things. And what I learned how to play, and then the mandolin was not necessarily a choice. Like, I want to be a mandolin player. It was like, here's the instrument we got. So (laughs) I wanted to play, I wanted to play what I heard, but I didn't know how to play. So I learned, like, to use for an example, the the Homer and Jethro album. One of the first songs I learned was The Bull Weevil. Oh, the bow weevil and a little black bug come from Mexico, they say. Come all the way to Texas, just a looking for a place to stay, just a looking for a home, just a looking for a home. And Jethro Burns took these really jazzy, swingy, complex solos in this thing. I couldn't play those, but I learned to play the melody. I'd play what they were singing, and I I learned learned to do that. And then over a period of a year or so, I'd finally get where I could steal one little phrase of, of Jethro's solo. And I would take that little phrase and plug it into my little simple melody. And it would get a little more complex. And then Norco would roll around. I'd go up to Norco and I'd steal another mandolin lick lick from somebody up there. And gradually, over a period of years, my playing became more and more complex. But looking back, what it enabled me to do was really learn a solid foundation before I added any more complexity to my playing. And I never had any trouble playing fast at jam sessions when I got older a little bit older, you know, early teens, because my breaks were simple. I could play them fast. And what I see a lot these days is people learn to play and they're immediately given a very complex version of whiskey before breakfast. And it's very noty and they, they learn to play it. Sorry, my phone's dinging here. They learn to play it, but um, they can't play it fast. They, they can't do it with any speed. And and after a while, they get a little bored, and so they, they get another tune, and they learn that. And, af- and this goes on until after a while, they've got 10 tunes that they can play at a medium speed. and But then they go to a jam session, and they get shellacked because everybody's playing it faster. And I've always been an advocate of keep it simple. And just you, I would rather have you play something simple where you can count the stitches on the ball, where you can – you can play every note and own every note and get your timing right and your pick direction right, all of that stuff. Um, it's a whole lot easier to do with seven notes than it is with 27 notes. <laughs> right. And learn that and then add complexity as you go. And I, I try to teach that way. Start off with, with a simple version of a song and add complexity as they go. 
Um, and pay attention to all the little nuances because some of those little things will come back and bite you later um, if you don't get them built into your foundation early on. And uh, so, so anyway, that's the way I, I learned to play. And as I got older, I, I, I my playing got more and more complex. And um, I branched out, started playing guitar, and then then went on from there. You know, I was playing with Byron Berlin, the L.A. Fiddle Band, and those things. Uh, you know, it, it, my career went on from there, but I was just a little, little mandolin picker sitting there trying to work out the melody to a Homer Jethro song. Yeah. And those Homer Jethro, that, that stuff is so, uh, cool and complex. I mean, it's, it's cool that you were like listening to that as a little kid and had that as opposed to, you know, you know, who knows if you'd uh, come across that later or if it'd have been something else you were listening to the way we all, yeah. you know, change. And you know, Homer Jethro were another that's that's another act right there that you know here is this it, it occurred to me as I got older here's this comedy act and yet these guys are good players yeah. and and so you know how um, Arthur Conan Doyle said one time uh, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself but genius recognizes talent or talent recognizes genius by, you know, can go either way immediately, meaning that the average people need to be entertained. And I, I, I think, and how do, how do I say this without sounding wrong? I don't want to give the wrong impression here. <laughs> Colonel Parker, who managed Elvis Presley understood this. There are people who will recognize how good Elvis is, but the rest of them, we have to tell them how good he is. Uh, right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm going to buy out the Apollo Theater in New York, and I'm going to fill it with seats, and I'm going to pay gals to scream down in the front row so that when the press shows up, they go, this guy must be good. It's a full house. And people are – they weren't listening to the music. They were looking at the crowd, and they gauged whether this guy was any good by – you know, marketing, that's what it is. And I always thought, you know, man, people are missing the best part of Homer and Jethro here because, my gosh, just, just the chord melodies and, and the way Homer played guitar and, and the jazz mandolin that that uh, Jethro played, they were awesome. And he played all this stuff, and I think it was lost on so many people because their jokes were funny and their songs were funny and they did that. But, man, for somebody who's a serious player – Take them seriously. Listen to Jethro Burns. It, it's it's good stuff, you know. You you know if you don't like the humor, just listen to his plan, you know. Anyway, I'm. I, I love I love the um the way you learn some of the things too because I think we I we take for granted nowadays with everything we have access to as musicians and as music fans, slow downers, YouTube. Basically, you have the entire recorded history of music in a in a phone you have access to everything ever recorded (laughs) you know where um i think it's cool where you're like i'd go up to uh the bluegrass festival once a year and learn a lick or learn learn a couple licks and go home and work on them and add them to my playing and that i I think sometimes that gets missed too that that ability to dive into something and really work on it because it's just so easy to be distracted by another song or like you said with the whiskey before breakfast example you you're learning the wrong version and you just yeah. give up immediately because they're like, ah, I can't get that. Yeah, I'll just work out. I'll move to something else now. And you, it's so easy to avoid that. Exactly. You know, and this, but all this technology, as great as it is, if we don't know how to use it, it can have an adverse effect because it plays into the 
to the undisciplined side of human nature, we want it now. And we can go on the internet and get anything right now. We can have it delivered tomorrow. And that's only happened in just the last few decades. And it, shoot, when I was a kid in the late Pleistocene, you know, there was you know, kids down don't even know what a payphone is. And, <laughs> right, you know, right. We had a party night, you know, on our phone at home. But yeah, there was no access to information. And what happened to me because of circumstance is something that I think as a teacher, I need to try to, to do to get um, these people to slow down a little bit and build your foundation, build it because the, you know, foundation they say isn't anything. It's everything. That's what you're building it on. And if you, if you don't get that solid because you've hurried through it, um, it's, it's really hard to go back to somebody who's been playing for several years and try to teach drive or try to straighten out pick direction that might be messing them up or, or, you know, hand positions and things like that that they've done for so long um take the time you know take the time <laughs> i love i've got all these little expressions i've got from my horse business it's take the time it takes and it'll take less time <laughs> that, that's a great that's a great saying yeah better spend a little <laughs> more time on your foundation now because you will accelerate so much faster later than to have to slow down later and try to play catch up and you never will you know you never really, really do it. And, you know, I was I was flying back from Europe. For the last 30 years, I've, I've spent almost half the year overseas and with my horse business and with music. And so I would I'll be on these long international flights and bored to death. I was reading everything, you know, books, magazines, you know, <laughs> the, you know just the, the, the manual on how to get out of the airplane. I'm reading all of this stuff. And I, I stumbled on an article in I think it was Smithsonian Magazine and it. It talked about for every one time, like, okay, let me back up. If you're learning a skill or a, a motor function skill, like playing the mandolin or piano or typing or tennis or bowling, anything like that, um, it, for every one time you allow yourself to do it incorrectly, it takes doing it again correctly seven times to erase the beginning of the neural pathway that you started with that one time. Yeah. And, and I thought, holy cow. And I started, I had this in the back of my mind as I went on with the work, because I was teaching equine sciences, teaching people how to correct behavioral issues in horses, and also teaching people how to correct hand position issues, you know, with their balance. <laughs> and, you know, it was exactly the same thing. Don't let yourself do it wrong. And the moment you become aware that it's incorrect, stop and fix it, even if you have to slow it down to a sales, snail's pace, because you're, you know, you're building that neural pathway, you're building that habit. And, you know, and it's kind of depressing to go, okay, I've been doing this wrong for a year now. So in seven years, if I never allow myself to do it incorrectly again, um, I'll be back to where I started. So just... You know, people can do it. You can overcome it. I'm not trying to paint a doomsday picture, but boy, it's a whole lot harder when you have that old habit nagging at you. It takes an, an amount of focus to correct a problem, a, an incredible amount of intense focus to stay with it and not let an old habit creep in. Because the moment your mind drifts to something else, boom, you go off and you play the wrong thing. You know, <laughs> right, right. Your hand goes back to the old habit. And so it's really important. You know, and that was a thing we talked um, about Chris Thiele a little bit, you and I offline before we started here. And, you know, Chris was one of those little guys that would come, his parents would bring him to watch our shows. 
and he was a year and a half old and he had rhythm, you know, he's out there dancing and wiggling around and, and they started lessons with him, with me at three years old. And that was a huge thing in the forefront of my mind back then. What would it be like to take a kid who's got this natural rhythm? You can tell he's musical and not just, I don't want to put any of my flaws into him, you know, cause same thing. I'm a self-taught guy. And as I get older, I go, you know, I wondered why I had that pinky there. Now I need it and I haven't been using it. So maybe I better start, uh, maybe I better start doing it. You know, all the little things that you correct in yourself as you go and that you learn. If I can, if I can be a teacher to this kid or for Sean Watkins and, and because he was taking lessons too and, and all the others and not let any bad habits get in there. It would be like programming a hard, or, you know, putting info into a hard drive but not letting any viruses in. If they're not in there, they're not going to come back out later and bite you. And so Chris is one of those guys. Then when when he had that foundation when he was young, he accelerated very very fast. And you know, by the time he's 12, 13 years old, he's he's a little monster, you know. But he was not ever having to go back and clean up anything. And uh, and that's that's just so important, you know. And if it's there's a balance between keeping it fun, but keeping it uh, to where it's uh, you're keeping it correct. You know, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm, not fun to go back and correct old habits. Yeah. No, yeah. Oh no, that's no. You're fine. That's it's interesting because I mean, I, I'm all about mandolin being fun, and 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 if that's all you want to do is have fun playing mandolin, and I'm however you want to do it is super cool. But I think there is something about like regimented practice and sometimes practice isn't fun. Practice is kind of work, <laughs> you know? And, yeah, and yeah. But, it, but the rewarding part of it is like when you work on something and then just, it it just pops into something you're playing at a gig. It's, it's like the most rewarding feeling ever to be like, Holy cow, I've been working on this, you know, for months and, and just, you know, and here it just, I didn't even think about it. It just happened and you know, yeah. and it's like, oh man, that's the best. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's great. And I understand people too, who just want to get a mandolin and just strum it and do, and that's awesome too. I mean, please keep that up. Let it always be fun. There's no need to work any harder than you have to, if you just want to do it as for fun. But I, I enjoy, you know, the, the puzzle aspect of it as well. You know, and mm -hmm. trying to figure out like, oh, I bet you there's an easier way to do this or a more efficient way to do this. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a it's the mental approach to it, and and I found that it's the same approach for other things, not just mandolin, not just this. You know, the it it becomes more of a, a science of learning how to learn, as it is almost more importantly than what particular thing you're learning you know there is there is a way to go about learning stuff i was in a i was in london um and i was looking for something to read on the flight home and i just in the bargain stack at the entrance to this store at the airport this uh, newsstand there was a book there and it said talent is overrated and i thought well this ought to be good so i bought it and i read it on the way home or most of it anyway and uh, the thing that was interesting about that book is it started off saying, how many exceptionally, how many exceptional people do you know who are exceptionally good at what they do? A Tiger Woods or, a, you know, or we could say a Chris Thiele or we could say Mozart or we could say, you know, uh, Larry Bird or anybody who's exceptionally good at what they do. How many do you know? And 
there's not not many people can say they know one or maybe they do or they know somebody who knows somebody who knows one but they're exceptional and that's why they're called exceptional and average is called average because that's most that's the majority so how do you create an exceptional athlete or musician or scientist and so the this looked at all of the common threads or the common thread that ran through everybody and they took they took tiger woods they took mozart um, they took um, Aldo Leopold, um, and they they said, "What is this common thread that runs through these guys?" And and it went through their childhood, you know, like men like Mozart. You know, he comes from a musical family. His dad, he had an association with Mendelssohn. Um, you know, Tiger Woods' dad was a golf nut. You know, they they lived it, breathed it, thought it growing up, and they were immersed around correct. It was done correctly in their environment as they were growing up, and they developed a way of practicing. And the thing came down to the study of how they practiced. And, um, you know, most people will play something, and here's a mistake a lot of people make. They'll be trying to get something on their mandolin, and they'll try, you know, nine times. And finally, on the tenth time, they 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 get it that hard to reach note or, or that phrase that's really hard to play. They mess with it, mess with it. Finally, on number ten, bam, they nail it, and they go, "Oh, good, I got it. Now I can quit." <laughs> right. <laughs> and you look at it and you go, "Okay, nine out of ten times you got it wrong." So if that's your practice session, you've just built a ninety percent failure rate into your into your playing because this better be flipped it better be 90% right and only 10% you get it wrong. And then we need to start working to make that 99%. It needs to be the other way around. We don't practice to where we just uh, sling notes out there and hope we get it right. Then when we finally do say that's practice, it's not. And uh, we don't sit down and just play our tunes and blow past our mistakes. Every good player I know um, thinks in phrases and they work their phrases out and they, uh, they hear a note, they back up and they drill that phrase to clean that place up, you know, and, uh, and, and, and own it, you know? So, so how do you, going back to the beginning of our conversation, how do you teach somebody to play with drive if they don't own what they're doing? You know, you can't play it like you own it, like you mean it, like a statement. Um, if you, if you aren't rock solid on it, you know, so I'm probably getting too, <laughs> no, I love that, man, dude. This is this is the if you're going to get nerdy and deep on a, 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 any sort of conversation, this podcast is the place to do it. <laughs> I oh, love okay. this stuff. Um, <laughs> what, what just going back real quick to Thiele, What age was it where you where you were like, oh boy, this kid is, uh, oh, unbelievably talented, like something special. Oh, you know, I, I've been asked that before, and I don't. I don't know. You know, let me answer it this way. I've seen a lot of kids that had a lot of talent who, who, you know, getting down to whatever talent is that, that innate edge that some people have toward doing certain things, um, whatever that is, I've come to this conclusion. I don't know that talent is really the ability. You have a talent for mandolin or you have a talent for guitar or a talent for tennis. I think what a lot of it is, is you have a talent for, for taking in information in a certain way where you, you, you formulate it in your mind in details uh, and look at it differently than a lot of people. Um, and that's, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm saying that right. So with Chris, I've, I've, I, I could see that in him. 
I have seen it in other kids. But here's one of the things that I really I really want to give credit to his parents um, for that because I've had other kids that that were taking lessons from me, and I go, man, this kid's got this kid's got quote unquote talent. And I'd say, why don't you take him out to this bluegrass festival? He needs he needs to be around other kids who do it. If his only if his only association with playing the mandolin is work, he's going to practice, you know, and he's going to go to the lesson. I'm going to tell him what he did wrong and tell him what he did right. <laughs> and then go back and practice again. This is going to last a few months and this kid's going to lose interest. Come with me. You t- he, he likes to play baseball. You took him to a Dodgers game last week. You know, you sent him to baseball camp. Uh, you know, if he, so, so treat the music the same way that you would your sports or anything else, take him out and hear a concert, let him hang around great players, um, to where they can mentor him and stuff. And this kid will grow. And I, I've only had a couple of parents in all my life do that. And the Thiele's were one of them. They, they took, and the Watkins were too, um, from the other part of Nickel Creek, they those kids they took them there they sat in the front row and listened to us play through me they met byron they met john reichland and mike reichman they met all these other people and and then that that leads to meetings of other people and they they end up being mentored by by some of the greats and um and so i could see in chris early on that that he had a talent and he learned things really quick um i remember um Lime Rock, for instance, I would I would play that in our shows, and, and I was, Chris always wanted to learn Lime Rock, and he wasn't he wasn't going to be able to do Lime Rock, and uh, you know the months are going by, and I'm giving him more material, and he's starting to get pretty good, and finally I'm going, I don't know, Chris, I think this is, I'll give it to you, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold it back, but don't get discouraged, and I give it to him, and I came back next week, and bam, he had it, <laughs> and I went okay. So he's on his way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I just really think that's, that's what it is. It, it, so much of what, what I do for a living is a way of looking at it. It's a way of thinking about it and, and arranging it in my mind before I try to do it. My plans that way, my horse stuff's that way. And you offer online lessons. We should let that be. If people yeah. listen to this and going like, holy cow, this is, this is awesome. This is like, this next level thing is, I mean, I'm so motivated right now. I'm trying not to pick up my mandolin to my left here. <laughs> you know? I appreciate it. Um, oh, I don't know. But you know, what's, what's, what, so you got the online lessons and what's great is that people might not be for, familiar with your playing, um, your, um, the California band and bluegrass, et cetera. And, and, and usually, you know, I always try to listen to the albums or albums of the person I'm interviewing like the morning of too, just to, you know, just to get a refresher and get in the place of mind and listen to that bluegrass etc album you can listen to those early Thiele albums and you can hear your influence on his playing um i think clear as day The, the note choices, the it. So I really implore people to go out and pick up these albums, which are available on iTunes, you know, or on Spotify, or what have you. 
Well, you touched on a really cool thing. Um, one of the things I don't, I could have this wrong. If somebody's listening out there, I believe it was Mendelssohn that Mozart, when he was a kid, lived with. And it was an immersion thing. And it was very natural for a student to play like his teacher for a period of time. And early Mozart stuff, um, his early writing sounds like Mendelssohn. And then it gradually begins to uh, morph into um, his own. Um, you know, Mo Mozart stuff then became be distinctly Mozart, but it's very natural for it to be that way. And I think it should be that way. And this is why I'm a huge advocate of learning to play or learning to do anything in an environment where you're surrounded by it being done correctly. You know, you're listening to uh, rhythm. Um, if, if you, if you grow up in an environment jamming with people, over at the neighbor's house on Wednesday nights and, um, you know, half of them, you know, every now and then their, their four, four time song has is three, four or five, four. And, <laughs> and, you know, and you're listening to stuff that gets burned into your brain. It gets burned in there. And, um, so, and, you know, when Chris used to come down to the house, Chris would come down and spend the weekend, you know, we, I had a mule that I'd put him on. I had a little mule named Samson. And uh, he'd be out, he'd go out horsing with me, you know, moving cows around. And he'd, uh, you know, we'd sit on the back deck and, you know, shoot acorns out of the tree with the 22. And we, he just would hang out and we'd play most of the time. But I had these other jobs I had to do. And Chris was there. He'd go back home and Sean would come up and do the same thing. And and it was the same sort of a thing in a scaled down way. It was a, it was an immersion thing where we just didn't have a one hour lesson. We could spend three days and just play off and on through that day. And, and uh, so being able to listen to it correctly, it, it does, I haven't, hadn't really thought about it, but, um, but I've heard that before that Chris is playing when he was young, sounded like, you know, reminiscent of my own. And that, that's a compliment and it's natural, but I think it's the natural order of things. And now Chris is, Chris is Chris. He's distinctly Chris, you know, I am. Um, and he has been for a long time. Yeah. The immersion thing, th there's, um, when I read Victor Wooten's book, he's got a great thing in there about, um, you know, like jamming with the masters and, you know, the, the example I think is Miles Davis. And he's like, well, I can't jam with Miles Davis. Miles Davis is dead. And the guy in the book goes over to the CD uh, rack and pulls off the Miles Davis album. He's like, you can play with Miles Davis all day with this right here, you know? And I, yeah. And I think you can still get that immersion thing. Um, if you, I think if you don't focus on distraction as much, if you really, you know, you, you, you might not have somebody like, um, Feely to jam with, but you can listen to Feely albums that are, that is, if that's the, let's just using him for an example, cause we're talking about him. But if you go to that, you know, like stealing second album, you're like, that's how I want to play. Well, then listen to that album a bunch, <laughs> you know, listen to that, yeah. work on, work on parts of that album. You can immerse yourself in that world, even if you don't have the access to being, you know, if you live way out in Colorado yeah. <laughs> and you, you don't and, have access you know, to that. And there's a side of that too, that, that enters into this, um, this uh, it, uh, to me, I have to link that back to what I was saying about learning to play, you know, keeping it real simple. And for me, I do, I, I know I would not have had the self discipline to keep it simple if I would have had access to everything people have access to today. But the lack of access to information made me learn more slowly. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
And when I take that and I put it together with, you know, now you can jam with somebody there, there is one thing to watch out for in that. And that is, I'm, <laughs> I, I've, I, I sit around sometimes and I listen to people play and I'll listen to somebody play and say the guitar and they've learned Doc Watson playing Black Mountain Rag and they've learned it note for note like Doc Watson and they're playing it. And I go, well, why don't they sound like Doc Watson? <laughs> <laughs> and I think what's happening, and and I've actually pursued this a little bit, and and I've had you know people who study <laughs> brains tell me this: they're not hearing themselves play when they play; they're hearing Doc play it. So they're sitting there playing their guitar, or they're playing their mandolin, and they're hearing Bill play it, or they're hearing Chris Thiele play it, or John Reichman play it, or Mike Marshall play it, and they're not really listening to themselves. And so much. Uh, is going by that they're letting things go by and not realizing that the reason that they that their hero sounds so good is he's paying attention to a level of detail and he has he has a standard that he holds himself to sometimes without even realizing it that this student is does not have and that's what we got to develop because they they quick they learn the song they hear the song they want to sound like chris Thiele. so they learn this really complex chris Thiele song well why don't they sound like Chris Thiele? Because they're not doing everything Chris Thiele's doing. They're doing the easy to hear parts, the obvious parts, but they're not really doing the thing that Chris is doing, which is owning the song. It goes back to owning the song. And, it, you know, you, you have to pay attention to that because you can jam with with uh, with the CD, but you better listen to yourself. And what I recommend people do sometimes is if they learn something note to note, note for note off of a, a CD, then stop, record themselves, and then play the exact same thing off the CD of the master doing it. And then sit there and listen to it and get right down to it and go, what is exactly the difference here? And sometimes the, the difference is so minute that you have to learn to listen to that level of detail. You have to learn to listen for certain things because initially you don't. You you gloss over it. But if you just take a little phrase, do 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 that right there and compare that yourself to the master back to back and see if you can spot what he's why does his sound different than you if you're playing exactly what he's playing why it should sound exactly the same but if it doesn't what is that what's causing that and uh and, and but that's the that's the not fun part of of playing but if you will if you will do that and focus on that it was leopold that said if you will use your mind like that to practice you'll get more done in an hour and a half than you will in eight hours of straight playing but you'll be totally exhausted in that hour and a half because the mental focus will just drain you but you'll get somewhere way faster <laughs> than you take the time it takes you know anyway there i go again Rick. i love it man this is so great <laughs> this is this is the best um i had so the the first way i really came about you uh your name um uh -huh. is the the I, I guess I, I mean i would assume almost everybody knows about this but but the john moore right hand exercises it was like once you found out about uh -huh. it, it was like this Ooh, there's these right hand the right hand technique and um th th which are amazing and uh, how did you kind of come up with that um it's it's a few it's a few short extra open string exercises but uh man they will put you through your paces <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, and and I I wasn't aware of how much that had gotten out, but into the world, but I but it 
it has, you know, and, and, you know, I've, I found out and, but well, the way that all comes from this, um, everything is a sum of its parts and you got a right hand and a left hand. And you, one of the things that sometimes people have trouble with when they're trying to pick up speed is, is getting the right hand, and left hand completely synchronized. And it usually comes down to, you really don't own it in your right hand or you really don't own it in your left hand and you're trying to play a little faster than you're capable of. And so I got to looking at this and, and this also ties into improvisation. And, and I'm, I know I'm rambling here, but I'm broadening the discussion, but I'll hook back to those right hand exercises. Um, you know, there's 26 letters in the English alphabet and with 26 letters, I can write a child's nursery rhyme or I can write a, Shakespeare play or a Charles Dickens novel. I can write something really complex or something really simple. And all I'm doing is using the same 26 letters. And it's the same with notes. There's a finite number of them. So everything is grouping. Everything comes down to grouping. I can take A, N, and D and form the word and. And then if I group it together with other groupings, I can form a sentence. And then I can group those sentences to a paragraph and tell a story. And music's exactly the same way. And but instead of sentences, we call them phrases and we we group these notes together into these phrases and we learn them. And then later, when we want to improvise, we learn them as words. And I'm improvising as I'm talking to you right now, and I'm doing nothing but reusing phrases that I've used in other sentences on other topics in other places. It does. The, the words I'm using are not unique to this conversation. I use them all the time. I've got a limited vocabulary. And so with music, my vocabulary on my mandolin are these phrases. And I can have a large vocabulary or a small vocabulary. Um, I try to enlarge that vocabulary by every song or everything I learn. I, I learn it in phrases. And so you get into these phrases and they have sequences in them. And I try to teach um, – there, there are exceptions to this, but as a general rule – down on if you if you're playing a note with eighth notes and you're counting eighth notes one and two and three and four and down on one up on and down on two up on and so the numbered notes are downs the ands are ups and when if you don't study that and get that early on and you get into something that's syncopated early on in your learning you'll tend to flip those pick directions around because we tend to do what's easiest whatever is the most familiar to us and uh, so we'll flip pick directions. And then you come along to a situation where you need to play something that is going at 5,000 beats a minute. You know, you're burning the barn down and you're playing back and forth. And you realize that you've, when you were playing it a phrase slowly, you flipped your pick direction. And now you're in the wrong position to play the next note. So it becomes a barrier to you playing fast. And this led Andre Segovia to, to once say that your style is defined by your weaknesses, not your strengths. The way you play is more defined by what you avoid and how you've worked around the hard parts instead of confronting them than anything else. So what most players will do is they get to a spot where there's they're out of position. They'll turn that eighth note into a quarter note or into, <laughs> into a, something like that, a whole note, and give themselves time to reposition. So I started looking at these phrases going, you know, let me pick some of these hard ones that generally tend to throw people off, and let's drill it, because banjo players drill their forward rolls and backward rolls. Fiddle players have bowing patterns. Why don't we people who play with a pick have the same thing? So one of them that, that's usually the first one that trips people up is um, – 
the one where it's I'm, I've got a string of eighth notes, two A's, one E, two A's, one E, and it's syncopated. So it's down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, every other one. But it's just back and forth in your right hand, and half of the players, that throws them off. So why not create a practice session out of isolating that sequence and drilling it until it becomes natural in your right hand? And there's, there's, you could make pages of them. I usually put out about two pages for these lessons. And, um, you know, it's three-string cross-picking, and sometimes you're syncopated back and forth between two strings. But it's, it's developing that right hand so that when you're looking at your left hand, your right hand's on autopilot. You've got to develop the autopilot for it. Um, so anyway, that's where all that came from. And um, I, I use that a lot. Um, it's, it, it takes away the barriers for, for playing syncopated stuff, or, which, you know, you know, everything from reggae to rock and roll is full of that stuff. And, and bluegrass does too. So you need to be able to do it. Anyway, <laughs> that's a long explanation. No, that's great. Now, and, and now a lot of times the right hand gets talked about on here, but one of the things about your playing that, I mean, which is really so striking is just like the clarity of your notes. I mean, it really is. It's beautiful sounding. And like you said, there's two hands. So uh, how about, is there maybe like um, a little tip you can give for the left hand for the people mm-hmm. out there listening, because again, a, a lot of times when we talk on this podcast with players, a lot of times the right hand comes up, and this might actually come into one of the questions I ask um, each each player or person I have on here is if you had ten minutes a day to work on something, what would you work on? Because it's well, it's it's similar in thought to like if you spend an hour and a half really working on something hard, it's like eight hours. My theory is. If you just spend 10 minutes a day focusing on nothing else but this one thing you want to work on for mandolin, you're eventually going to get better. Because so many and people you know, say... I, I agree. Yeah, yeah people say, oh, I, can't, I don't have time to get better. You have 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes. You can make 10 minutes. And then you can get better if you if you focus. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. You know, so let's with that in mind, and, and maybe a left hand, something to work on with the left hand, what would you maybe recommend? You know, I tell you, I... That, that in left hand, you can talk about everything from, from hand position. Um, you know, my hand position moves around depending on what I'm playing or what chord I'm playing. Some require me to arch my wrist and some require me to, you know, collapse the wrist. You could do all that. Um, the, the, the main thing I would say, if I just had to come up with something off the hand would be, um, synchronizing it with the, with the right hand in those left hand notes, um, the the parts of the left hand that, that can cause a lack of clarity is, um, you know, just a muddled note. It's not it's not fretted clearly. It's it's not uh, it's not there. It's 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 implied. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's an implied note, you know, and and your ear kind of gets it, and you move on past that, and you don't you don't really work on it. I would just say what I would do what I do on like on the guitar. I sit down. My warm up tune is Little Rock Getaway. Because it gives my hand a workout, and I play it real slow and make sure every single note is clear.
And if I make a mistake, I don't go on and I don't go back to the beginning. I isolate the phrase that contains the mistake and I drill that. But what I call a mistake isn't always audible. If I'm playing something on my mandolin and I got through it, but I felt like my chair was flipping over backwards, (laughs) but I got through it, that's a mistake because I don't own it. If I play something and I feel like I didn't own it when I played it, then I need to drill it. I need to go back and and work on it. And, you know, in in left hand, there are a lot of things. If we were live, you know, in person, I could show you that that are economy of motion things you can do. You don't have to always pick your your fingers up every time you change notes. Um, There are licks where you can leave, you can leave, say, your third finger, finger on the fifth fret. Um, well, let me change that second finger on the fifth fret of your D string and do a pull off or a push off on the fourth fret of the A and do a syncopated lick that's very reminiscent of Eric Clapton, you know, um, and leaving that finger down. And a beginner's thing to do a lot of times is to pick the finger up every single time you change notes. And, you know, those are the kinds of things, um, easier to show than, than to describe, but, but I don't know if I if I <laughs> answered your question or not. But <laughs> no, 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 that's awesome, man. I mean, it's just all those things, and and, and I think a lot of times I the left hand, um, just because I mean they both are so important, but the right hand seems to be the one that's doing so much of the stuff that makes people stumble. You know that I think we forget to ask the left-handed question, so I always try to start to try to add that in there. Sure. Yeah. If you it's... do, you have a favorite fiddle tune to play on mandolin. Oh gosh, um, yeah, I um, I sit down sometimes and just play, uh, you know, Fisher's Hornpipe or um, Cherokee Shuffle or Ragtime Annie or yeah, just some of those. I grew up listening to fiddle tunes, you know. Um, it's fun uh, when I played with uh, the California band. Dan Curry had recorded a an adaptation of Mozart's Rondo alla Turca. And uh, he called it Memories of Mozart. And we used to do it with a California band. Um, and uh, it's it's not exactly as Mozart wrote it. It's an adaptation, but it's it's a challenge. And I like to sit around and play that. It works my fingers out and gets me gets me warmed up. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. What's your main axe? Oh, the mandolin I'm playing now, and I've been playing for a long, long time. It's a Gibson F5 Fern, and it was uh, it was a gift from Gibson, and uh, but it came about in kind of a funny way. I was um, Todd Wright uh, worked for Gibson for a long time, and and he's a good friend, and and I I just know him from you know the music business. We see each other encounters each other off and on for years so we got to know each other and he called me up uh well actually let me back up uh, when i would see him at a festival he'd start asking me you know john do you what do you like on a mandolin? do you like a radius fingerboard do you like uh you know what kind of a bridge and you know what kind of sound do you like and over over a period of a couple of years i'd tell him these little things and and uh, we'd talk about mandolins and one day i'm driving down the road here in colorado and 
and Todd calls and he says, Hey, your mandolin's ready. Oh. And I went, Oh, <laughs> I did, I, did I order a mandolin and I forgot? You know? Oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> what? So I'm like, Oh, she's Todd. Uh, wow. You know, what's uh, that's great. But you know, gosh, you know, I can't I don't think I can afford an F5 furnace. He says, Nope, this is, this is a, you know, an endorsement thing. And, and whew, you know, so I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very relieved at that point. So the thing of it was, um, I was leaving to go to Europe and uh, do a, a tour over there. And he was going to ship this mandolin to me. And I couldn't, uh, I didn't know how I was going to get it because I was leaving in a couple of days. It was like two days later or three days later, I was driving from my place to Denver to catch a flight overseas. And the Telluride Festival was going on um, that weekend. And I was going to pass by Telluride on my way to Denver. And so I got on the phone and my buddy Brad Davis um, was playing with Sam Bush at the time in his band. And Sam was booked at Telluride. So we we cooked up this deal where Todd was going to be at the Gibson booth at Telluride. And um, you can't get within you you can't get into the town of Telluride when the festival's going on. You come off a lizard head pass and you get to the bottom down there and Telluride's about three miles up the valley on a spur road and they shuttle people in, you know, and and it gets real crowded in there. So I couldn't drive into Telluride, go into the festival and pick up the mandolin at the booth. So we cooked up this deal where um Todd we had the booth at, at Telluride, and and when Sam's band and, and him all got there, Brad got the mandolin and got on a ski lift and headed up the side of the mountain. And I got to the top of Lizardhead Pass, which is several miles before you get into Telluride, and I took a logging road and went driving out across the top of the mountain there. And Brad came up over me on the ski lift with the mandolin. <laughs> <laughs> So we got down there and I, I finally found the place where the the mandolin or where the ski lift came down and did the turnaround, you know, where the skiers get off. And I got down there and Brad passed the mandolin off to me. Wow. And, and took the ski lift back down the mountain to tell you right. And I I headed on, I grabbed it, you know, and got back and and headed on to Denver uh with it. And so I that's the way I got the mandolin delivered to me. And it was, it was a, it's a great mandolin. But this, the epilogue to the story, I got all the way to, I think I flew to, I flew to London and I was, I don't know what I was doing. Maybe I was teaching at Sore Fingers Week there in, in England. And I got off the plane, picked up my stuff, put my mandolin on top of the rag, uh, the baggage cart, you know, and I'm going through the airport there and the dang thing fell off and it oh. crashed to the ground you know and i'd barely even played this mandolin and i opened the case and the scroll around the top of the peg head was broke off <laughs> oh wow <laughs> brand new and and then of course it looked just like bill monroe's mandolin because you know in the old days maybe some of the younger players right now don't remember that for decades bill monroe's mandolin had no finish you know he had scratched it off with a nail that whole famous story and uh, and the peg head scroll was, was broken off on it. And so I took the broken scroll and put it in the little compartment of the case. And, and I went on. And for the whole tour, everybody was teasing me that I wanted to look like Bill Monroe. I, that I got this <laughs> perfectly good Gibson F5 mandolin and broke the thing off so I could look like Bill. <laughs> which, which was not true. And then, uh, you know, I, I was standing there with the thing. And I got home and John Hickman 
said, you know, I could glue that thing back on for you. <laughs> well, John's a good luthier, you know. And uh, I said, well, sure. Yeah, John, do it. Because I was afraid I was going to mess it up. John went and got a tube of super glue and he put it on there and he stuck it back on. <laughs> uh, well, John, I could have done that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That <laughs> is got great. a big ridge, you know. You can see it there. And, and John said, well, bring it in the shop, you know, next time you're in Oklahoma and I'll finish that off and you'll be able to tell. And, uh, and I never did, never did, never did. And then John's health went bad and John passed away. And now I kind of don't want to fix that because it's a memory of John Hickman. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's, that's a great it's story. It's a great mandolin. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. And, and that's my main one. I play that on everything now. And, and bef I, I, I've got this jotted down here too. I want to ask you about your docu documentaries. Um, that you've you've filmed two documentaries where you've done pretty much majority of all the background music. Um, oh yeah. Uh, what are those about? And where can people find those at? They can find those at um, um, it's the Lone Star Cowboy Poetry Gathering, and uh, that that came about. I should have it here. I I, uh, I should have had it in front of me before we started it. Um, I'll look it up here while we talk. But uh, a couple of years ago, the family moved to um, Alpine, Texas. Uh, you know, I travel to do my um, my work because of where I live. Um, I have to travel. I catch an airplane, you know, and I'm gone a lot. And so it didn't really matter where I live. So I could still keep the music going and still live in Alpine, Texas, which is also real remote. And um, while I was down there, um, you know, COVID hit, messed everything up. We couldn't tour. We couldn't. My, I couldn't go to Europe anymore. And um, I got asked to be on the board of this uh, Lone Star Cowboy Poetry Gathering, but it's also very heavily music. And uh, they asked me to do document some documentary films on a lot of the players and poets in that association. And there's some great songwriters in there and uh, and musicians, mandolin players, guitar players. And so I'd go out to their places. And my wife and I work as a team, and and my daughters actually. We go out, and we film, and. Uh, them doing their things in their private life and it's usually on a ranch somewhere and then come back and edit it all into about an hour and a half movie but then all the the music in the middle the bumper music beginning and end and all the film music soundtrack stuff all the way through i i recorded and record and do myself and then uh, the music that they play is what's is what they're doing live in, in the music or in in the movie i'm sorry and um yeah this uh, the the website is lonestarcowboypoetry.com um but i don't want that to be deceiving it's it's heavy on the music and if you go to that you can find these films uh, the first one's called keeping the tradition alive and the second one is called the the legacy lives on and it's due to be released this month oh cool so it's not on, it's not on their website yet but the first one is on their website and um you know, their their emphasis is on the, the subject matter a lot. Um, a lot of us bluegrasser types are our emphasis is on the, the instrumental part of it. So this is this is a lot of neat lyrics and, and some good playing behind it too. But uh anyway, I think people would enjoy it. That's Yeah, that's great. I'm definitely gonna check perfect. it out, man. And I'll and I'll post links. Um, there'll be links to the in the description of this podcast. There'll be links on mandolinsandbeer dot com as well, and of links to everything where everybody can find you. And man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. You are a busy dude, <laughs> and the fact oh, that you yeah. took the time to do I this is 
Man. I found more ways to stay busy and not make any money than most people. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I should tell, I think I had one more thing I should add there. Yeah. Um, this album that I've got coming out and everything else that I'm doing, um, I've got a website and it's uh, com. Believe it or not, it started off as, as a website for my horse business, but uh, it we now have it as a split website and we're adding more and more to it. It laid dormant for a while after COVID, so I'm just getting it caught up. It's not fully updated, but it's John Moore, my name, um, and then the number four, and then horses.com. John Moore four, number four, horses.com. And uh, that'd be the easiest place to find, um, find, you know, this album when it comes out. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, that, and then so. hopefully uh, when you're getting ready to, to have it come out, please um, send me uh, a tune and I'll definitely pro- feature it here on one of the podcasts so people can check it out. I'm so excited to hear it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to hear that this is coming out because it seems like most of the a majority of the recorded stuff out there is a little bit, a little bit older, right? Like the bluegrass, etc. Albums and oh the, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's outdated. Yeah, we we backed way off. I I got into uh, really teaching equine sciences and and traveling doing that, and uh, and now I'm doing online lessons with that too with the horses. Wow. But yeah, I kind of backed off a little bit. Um, Dennis's health was was going a little bit downhill, and we lost our bass player, and we went for a period. You know, he passed away, and. And we went for a period of time, didn't do a whole lot. So I'm trying to fire that back up again um, on my own. And so this album will be the first shot at that. And then I'll probably try to do a, a mandolin, an all mandolin record after that. Oh, cool. And so. Well, that's yeah. awesome. And you say you say outdated, but when you listen to these recordings, they don't sound outdated at all. You can listen to this. It sounds just as good as anything that you've been, oh. anybody's been listening to uh, currently. It's it's great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's just that my hair was dark on the album cover. So <laughs> 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 yes. now, now, the final question, you are busy, but do you find time to enjoy a beer? And if so, do you have a favorite beer? Oh, gosh. I'm not a beer snob, but I'll tell you what, I... My favorite is Boddington's. Oh, yeah. Have you ever had that? I have had that. I stumbled onto it in England, and I could not find it here, and I finally figured out how to get it here. Nice. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't know a lot about beer, but, um, you know, in, in Europe where it's, it's a social cultural, it's not just you don't go to the pub to get drunk. You go to the pub to socialize and enjoy a beer. It's almost like a meal, having a good beer. And uh, so I, I I like it that way. And I, and I do like Boddington's. I mean, I like other stuff too, but. Yeah, that's but, uh, great. Yeah. So I sit out on the porch in the evening sometimes, drink a Boddington's and play my mandolin. Yeah, it sounds like, that sounds like a perfect evening to this guy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, if you get out this way, we'll do it together. Buddy, I would love to do that, man. That would be amazing. Yeah. So, Oh, you'd be welcome. Oh, John, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate that. And and uh, I'm going to find your podcast and become a regular listener here, too. Oh, so please thanks, do, man. There's, for yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Man, just a great conversation with John Moore. That was awesome. I can't wait for that album. Thank you guys so much. Please head over to mandolinsandbeer.com, sign up for the mailing list, head over to Instagram, and uh, hit my Instagram up. Uh, and also, I'll be at Delfest and IBMA coming up here. Got some new merch, so be sure to uh, say hey if you're going to be there. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>